Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of the Talkville 21 podcast. This week, we will be continuing our discussion on the legacy of Fukuyama's notion of the end of history, this time in the context of the field of global history. We are joined today by Dr. Gigan Sud, an associate professor in early modern international history at the London School of Economics. Before arriving at the LSE, he held research and teaching positions at Cambridge, the European University Institute, and Yale, and is currently also co-editor of the Journal of Global History. While Dr. Sood's main research interests lie in the Middle East and South Asia between the 17th and 19th centuries, he is also interested in Europe, China, and India, and their role in the genesis of the modern world. It's this trans-regional focus that we hope to draw on today as we seek to tease out the relationship between this idea of the end of history and the concept of the great divergence between the West and the East in the modern era. Today is also a landmark for the podcast, our first two-parter. Our discussion with Dr. Sood is truly illuminating, first through an extensive discussion of the nature of Fukuyama's work and impact, then through an analysis of the nature of scholarship in global history, emerging from our examination of the idea of the Great Divergence. Today, it's the former that we present to you, covering Fukuyama's end of history and looking at the emergence of global history as a field. I hope you find it as fascinating as I did. Welcome, everyone, to the fourth episode of Talkville 21. We are here today with Gagan Sood, a professor at LSE. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Shane, for having extended this invitation to me. That was my great pleasure. So we've decided to talk today about the end of history and the great divergence and uh, sort of explore the topic from a very uh, uh, historical perspective. My, my first questions are going to revolve more or less around uh, Fukuyama and his perception in, in academic history and, and how his ideas were received. So, Professor, what was Fukuyama's influence on historical scholarship in the 90s? How, how much of an impact did he have? I realize that he was a, a political scientist, but I'm sure his, uh, the way in which his, his ideas spread had an impact in history. Fukuyama, yes, he was a political scientist, and he was a civil servant in the American State Department. I, I ask you to cast your mind back to those of us who were alive and active in the 1990s to the 1990s. And Fukuyama's book on, uh, with the title, the end, of, the end of History and the Last Man, it really did catch the public imagination. It became all the rage, particularly in the Anglo-American English speaking world elsewhere, less so, but, but certainly in the Anglo-American world. And why it did so, and therein lies its influence at the time, was largely to do with the context of the 1990s. Um, we all know that the 1990s, at the beginning of the 1990s, was marked by the fall of the, the Soviet Union, German reunification, the onward march of neoliberal globalization, uh, US hegemony, a unipolar world. Uh, these were the, the, the sound bites that were coming out from, from many, many commentators. And uh, scholars are not above all that. Scholarship got caught up in that fashion. And it is in that context that Fukuyama and his book emerges and, and comes to define that moment. So in, in specific response to your question, it was influential, predominantly at the level of public discourse. 
public discourse to do with a certain tradition in political thought or intellectual history, which is quite distinct from other fields of history and, and scholarship more generally. It's intellectual history and political thought tends more towards the philosophical. And in this tradition, it had long been argued that there exist different forms of political organization that go under a variety of labels, monarchy, democracy, autocracy, despotism, tyranny, and the list goes on. Fukuyama claimed that in the early 1990s, not least with the fall of the Soviet empire, history had ended in that it had been demonstrated that liberal democracy is supreme liberal democracy rooted in the free market, rooted in small government, rooted in individual legalism. So that writ small is what Fukuyama was arguing, and it caught the zeitgeist of that moment in the Anglo-American world of the 1990s. And you say that this influence was felt more strongly in the Anglosphere. Is this purely due to the fact that, that so much academic thought is, is concentrated around the United States and there was so much engagement from the Anglosphere in the Cold War in a way that wasn't true exactly in the same way for France or Germany that were both not entirely on the side of what we would call the West? Well, there are a variety of reasons for why the Anglo-American world would be most receptive to Fukuyama. Fukuyama was obviously is an American writing in English based in one of the great metropoles of the Anglo-American world, namely Washington, D.C. Also, uh, America was the vanguard of the so-called free world as opposed to the totalitarian world of the Soviet Union. I mean, we're talking about caricatures here, but caricatures are powerful, particularly when it comes to the public opinion uh, discourse more generally. And Fukuyama's thesis very much reinforced certain of those caricatures, particularly the character which had the US at one side as a, a kind of Whiggist progressive culmination of, of a Euro-Western history in contrast to the caricature of the Soviet-led East as a benighted totalitarian despot, a regime that was imperial, centralized, driven by a command economy. And so this uh, padded to a sense of self, which was most cultivated in particularly America, but also Britain too, to which continental Europe has always had a difficult relationship, not least or above all those in France. These are some of the reasons why it is the Anglo-American world, which was at the vanguard of those who, who lionized Fukuyama and his thesis. But, but having said that, at another level, there is a deeply continental European background or genealogy to what Fukuyama expressed. In a sense, his tradition of political thought or intellectual history owes a great deal to a Central European tradition of thought rooted that goes through Hegel and Kant, one which is driven by a, a, a certain spirit which conjoins state and society, which gives precedence to ideas and cultures. So while in the 1990s, the English-speaking world was most actively involved in debating Fukuyama, that is not to deny the relevance and the involvement of continental Europe in a, in a deeper sense. Oh, I couldn't agree more. My personal feeling is that Fukuyama drew very deeply from this tradition, this, this continental tradition. One small critique that I would have is that 
there's a lot of engagement from academics outside of history with these traditions that often have a very specific context within history and and their engagement tends to be a little bit a little bit on the superficial side that being said one of the questions i have about fukuyama specifically over the past few uh, or rather in the 1990s is uh whether it's fair to say that his ideas were faithfully reproduced in public discourse. In public discourse, uh, once, uh, as uh, I don't know who it is that said this, but as has been famously said, once an idea escapes the hand of the author, he's no longer in control of it. And this is what happened with uh, Fukuyama, not least because of how engaging the title of his book was, The End of History, and the last man. Could one think of anything more Shellian, more resonant, more poetic? But the end of history means one thing to scholars trained in intellectual history, and it means something quite different to Gary and Hull, to the average educated punter. The end of history suggests the end of time, uh, the end of uh, events, the end of development, if one is not careful given the everyday understanding of what means history. Fukuyama did not argue that. He was arguing for the end of development of a certain intellectual tradition. Events would still happen. There would still be new individuals who would change the course of history, but intellectually, they would be beholden to a single logic, a logic defined by liberal democracy. That is what he saw the 1990s marking the culmination of, the end point of. Nonetheless, I suspect there's an editor somewhere patting himself on the back for a very successful uh, PR job. Despite that, the somewhat more popular perspective of his work, the, the way that it, or the idea that captured the popular ima uh, imagination was not necessarily the more refined point that you so clearly um, elucidated here, but it had a considerable amount of influence. Do you feel that it has since lost this influence or that are we still, are we still under the shadow of Fukuyama in a lot of ways? I think it's fair to say Fukuyama is considered in one word, bunkum. It has precious little substance. That thesis has precious little substance to it. And not just in retrospect, even at the time the book was being read and debated within uh, the commentariat among think tank circles, most, if not the great majority of scholars at the time with any historical sensitivity, so not just historians, but also historically minded anthropologists, sociologists, political scientists, among others, were bemused by it. They thought it has to be, it probably is, nonsense, no matter how engaging the way in which it was written and articulated, because they had seen, we have seen many times in the past, contemporaries claiming to be superior than any generation preceding them, which is what, in a sense, Fukuyama was arguing, that we uh, Anglo-Saxons, Anglo-Americans of the 1990s are the culmination, are the endpoint of all that has come before, and thus implicitly, we are superior to all that has gone before. And yet every single time that that has been claimed in the past, it has been shown to be untrue. So scholars of the time, with this proof by induction, this is a form of, um, of proof, were of the view that this cannot be right. That was shown to be true 
given developments that occurred very soon after, in the years that followed Fukuyama's book being published, these developments showed uh, very clearly that the thesis of the end of history in the last man, of the supremacy of liberal democracy rooted in a free market, in small government, in individual legalism, is wishful thinking. Uh, and we all know what these developments are. 9-11, the clash of civilization, the resurgence of religion, environmentalism as a primary concern among many, many different communities, populism, the uh, emergence of strongman rulers in, in a number of countries, and most recently, last but not least, the movements that go under the label of anti-racism or decolonization. All of these have at their heart a set of ideas, albeit spanning a very wide spectrum, which show that intellectual thought continues to be a work in progress. History in that sense has not ended, thus Fukuyama was wrong. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about the theories that sort of came up and, and undermined Fukuyama, or the moments, rather, you mentioned Huntington, or rather specifically the, the clash of civilizations. If I remember, they were not, they were colleagues, do you feel that tension was was already apparent in the 90s or did it really take a few uh, a few years notably the the, the arrival of uh, of the early 2000s and uh, and 911 to to really challenge the notion of of fukuyama at least in a in a general academic sense we'll, we'll talk a little bit more specifically about history in a moment well in a sense i would invert that question i would turn mm -hmm. uh, or the claim in that question on its head in favor of fukuyama's end of history thesis is something rather novel. Even if it was wishful thinking, that there is novelty. There was novelty in that wishful thinking in that he was making a claim for a global universalism embodied in liberal democracy, which has come to or will soon come to envelop the totality of the globe and its peoples and, its, and their policies, which had never been viewed as viable or at any moment up to that point, up to the 1990s. So um, that, that partly accounts for the great fascination for his thesis, whereas Huntington and his thesis of the class of civilization is anything but new. It is an age-old trope. It is an age-old grand narrative or paradigm, which juxtaposes a great, all-powerful uh, them against an us. In his case, the East as opposed to the West, or Islam as opposed to Christianity, with each of these occupying their self-contained, internally consistent worlds between which there is relatively little productive, substantive intercourse. And that is an age-old way of insiders understanding outsiders, going back to possibly the Sumerians, of some 5,000 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia, all the way down to Huntingdon in the 1990s. All right. If we engage with Fukuyama, there are a few claims within his work, or rather a few distinct claims to dispute. You recognize that there are certainly a lot of challenges to his work, but ultimately, what do you think it was that did him in? Was it the, the universalism? Was it the notion of like a sort of Hegelian endpoint within the, re the, the civilizational context of the West? Which elements have been the most contested ultimately? Because 
in my opinion, it's hardly the first time that that we've had universalist thought within within the West. I mean, like the entire tradition of the French Revolution sort of leads leads to that in a lot of ways. Is it merely that there was the absence of a challenge that allowed for it for Fukuyama to state that, oh, well, you know, now there has been this victory? And was he really wrong ultimately about that being the culmination of uh, of a Western society? Or was it more that he was wrong in, in stating that this particular ideal had become universal? Because I feel like those are two very different claims. You're absolutely right, Shane. Uh, the past brims with thinkers who have uh, who had articulated universalist ideas, claiming universality for their notions of, of moral behavior or kingship. But what was distinctive and unheralded about the 1990s was that you also had the prospect, never previously entertained as viable, of a global universalism under a single hegemon, namely the US. So the possibility of an idea not being just universal cognitively, but also universal in reality. That combination, that particular juxtaposition had never been seen before as a viable prospect. That's what makes Fukuyama's thesis so gripping, particularly to, to America and the world that America was at the vanguard or saw itself at the vanguard of. As to what gave the light to it, well, it depends. Different um, developments undermined Fukuyama for different constituencies. For those who who thronged the think tanks and were privy to discussions among policymakers, it was events which rendered Fukuyama irrelevant. The, the kind of events we mentioned earlier on, beginning with 9-11, or famously uh, 9-11, but other, other events too. For scholars beyond those who, were, who are specialists of political thought or intellectual historians, for them, it was different because most scholars in fields outside political thought really hadn't given Fukuyama much, much credence and didn't see him as his thesis as, as worthwhile engaging with for the purposes of scholarly research. So for them, there was much less of a barrier to dismissing him quite early on. But then again, Fukuyama's The End of History was primarily a debate conducted not within academic scholarly circles. It was a debate conducted primarily uh, within policy and more popular circles. All right. Well, let's let's talk briefly about that then. What exactly was the perspective on Fukuyama within a global historical context, within academic circles in history specifically? Well, that, that's, that's what's intriguing, because at the very time you saw Fukuyama's book appear, late 80s into the 90s, and gain traction you also see a parallel development, which retrospectively can be viewed as the precursors to what we now call global history. The 1990s saw the first steps taken in the founding of this version of history that has become quite um, prominent today. Where it differs from the tradition to which Fukuyama cleaved was that whereas Fukuyama and his version of political thought and, and intellectual history, history tended to privilege ideas, the cognitive realm, this parallel trend, which we'll call for convenience global history, though it wasn't called that then, in contrast to Fukuyama, tended to privilege the material dimensions of life. And most prominent in its early development were economists and economic historians. 
they also shared the following with Fukuyama and Hizelkin that both of these trends were avowedly about grand interpretive narratives, grand interpretive paradigms, grand interpretive frameworks, but pitched at different dimensions. One being pitched primarily in the realms of ideas, the other being pitched primarily in the realms of earthy material life. So these two developments were occurring roughly in parallel in the 1990s. And the second, the global history development has survived and thrived, whereas the trend that Fukuyama was part of has, for the time being, withered away. Do you feel this is, rather, would you define this as the distinction between a sort of Hegelian tradition and a more Marxist tradition? That's an interesting way of putting it. And perhaps to answer that question, it's worthwhile spending a few moments on trying to understand how it is global history comes about. It is a field within social scientific and historical scholarship. It's quite broad ranging, though it was primarily developed within economics and economic history. And it emerges and was developed for reasons that were both internal to these fields, as well as external to these fields. Internally, what becomes global history was a purposeful, substantive response to the pre-existing radical critiques that go under the umbrella of post-structuralism and post-colonialism of the preceding generation, the generation of the 80s and 90s, in which great play was given to the relationship between power and knowledge, to discourse, to dismantling certain notions which had previously been considered age-old and true, but which were then shown to be historical constructs, such as the notion of Europe, the notion of a Black race, the notion of uh, industrialization as being a, a result of curiosity that has its roots in Western history that go back to ancient Greece. These were the kind of constructs that post-structuralism and post-colonialism sought to, and in some senses, managed to dismantle. Well, global history was a purposeful response to that radical critique because a number of scholars wished to go beyond critique and establish ways of doing history, ways of understanding the past and the present that offered larger stories, that offered larger paradigms, which they felt were necessary in order to make sense of and grapple with the continuing inequalities in the world of the 1990s. That accounts for the internal reasons for the emergence of global history. But alongside that, intersecting them were external reasons. And the two most important of them was the rise of China and the prospect of environmental catastrophe, which was already being talked about in the 1990s, both of which came to the fore in the 1990s. And these two external ideas, ideas that were part of the, the public discourse of, of the time, acted to undermine the foundations of what had previously been thought to be the foundations of Western supremacy. These external developments placed doubt on prevailing accounts of how their contemporary world had come about. It allowed new questions to be posed or old, age-old questions to be posed afresh. And the most notable of these uh, were regarding China, particularly its past greatness, 
and then its surprising, shocking decline vis-a-vis -vis Europe. And these fed into what then becomes the debate over the great divergence, the great divergence between Europe and China, between East and West, which is where global history was fashioned in the 1990s into the early 2000s. All right, well, that, that leads to two questions. The first, could you define the great divergence for our audience? And the second, how do you feel that this new emerging paradigm has influenced policy circles or rather the policy circles that actively engage with academia, at least, over this course, this period that we're discussing from the 90s to, to now. So to respond to your first question, uh, th there are libraries dedicated to the Great Divergence debate. So I'll be very brief regarding what it refers to, what it constituted in substance. From the perspective of Christian Europe, of Christendom, of the, the ancient Greek Mediterranean world, there's always been an East in contradistinction to their world, which let's call it the West for the sake of convenience. With the opening from the, um, well, with Marco Polo and his fabled famous uh, journey to the land of the great Khan and his return and then the, then the memoirs uh, that he wrote uh, whose veracity can be questioned on, on multiple levels. But nevertheless, from the 13th, 14th century onwards, there's been an awareness in Christian Europe of this great, wealthy, uh, powerful uh, regime and population far away to the east. With the opening of the maritime route between the Atlantic world and the Indian Ocean world via the Cape of Good Hope in one direction, and then the circumnavigation of the world via Cape Horn and the Pacific Ocean from the end of the 15th century, but particularly in the 16th century, an awareness developed in um, Central Western Europe, particularly in France, in Spain, Portugal, and then later on in Holland, the Netherlands, and Britain, of this Chinese imperium and its greatness, and its indeed superiority uh, compared to anything that these Christian Europeans knew in their homelands of Central and Western Europe. So as time moves forward, imagine their surprise when come the 19th century, this China is far from the great policy and empire that it had been in the not so distant past. And conversely, Europe, Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, is speeding ahead. It's industrializing. It is gaining economic, political, military power, which is far outstripping any other part of the world, uh, and in particular, China, which had been, as far as it was concerned, the greatest of the pre-existing regimes in the world. And from the, 19, well, from the 16th century, but particularly intensively from the 19th century, there has been a debate seeking to make sense of why it was that the West rose and the East fell, why it was that Europe emerged to dominance and China declined and fell away. And so that debate has been in the air, or from the very beginning, from the time of China's greatness. And its most recent manifestation was in the 1990s through the prism of global history. All right. I'm trying to remember my second question, actually. Uh, it's relevant to policymakers. Yes, yes. Actually, no, let me ask a more interesting question. So on the one hand, we have this emerging new field that aims to understand the causes of the emergence of the West as this dominant center for, uh, 
for, for economic and political power. This is a scholarship that emerged largely, as you said, in the 90s, in 2000s, and that has sort of snowballed since. My question is, how much of that is, uh, is European thought? Uh, how much of the scholarship is performed in academic institutions that, that specifically have this, this uh, rather what we would call a Eurocentric view? That's very well put. In fact, that is probably the most troubling feature of the debate. I would suggest we take a step back by all means. And, and, and approach that question by looking at what this debate was seeking to contribute to, to what this debate was seeking to contribute. Remember, it's economists and economic historians that are at the forefront of uh, researching it, carrying out the scholarship that comes to be labeled the great divergence. And there's a reason why economics is called the dismal science. The fact that it is referred to as the dismal science gets at the heart of what it seeks to do. And it seeks to ultimately, in the best possible sense, improve the lot of mankind. It seeks to mitigate the wealth inequalities of the human species in the hope of raising the wealth of us as a whole. And that is what those who were contributing to the Great Divergence had in mind. In order to enact policies at the level of states which seek to help the well-being of human beings, it's important to have an accurate, credible understanding of how present inequalities or the present situation has come about. And the present situation in the world of the 1990s, or an important aspect of the situation in the world of the 1990s, was the developed West and the developing or underdeveloped East, the two being exemplified by Euro-America on one side and East Asia or China on the other side. So the question of the Great Divergence is a priori central to how policymakers understand the world and thus what kind of policies they can envisage as able to deal with these problems. That was what motivated these economists and these economic historians to undertake research into the economic history of China and the economic history of Europe from the 16th century through to the 19th century. This was history of a comparative kind on the grandest of scales. And as I say, it sought to answer why it was the West rose and the East fell by comparing what they deemed comparable aspects of European history and of Chinese history economically and politically. However, and this answers your specific point about whether or not it managed to evade Eurocentricism or ethnocentricism, is that ultimately this scholarship, uh, the contributions to the debate on the Great Divergence, ultimately failed on their terms, on their own terms, because we now know, looking back on that debate, the metrics on the basis of which the comparisons between aspects of European history and aspects of Chinese history were being made were derived from the European past. Central to the comparisons were notions of GDP, of wage labor, of the individual worker, all of which made sense for particular elements of the European past down to the 19th century and the present, but were of questionable relevance to China in the era of the Ming or the Qing. So what ends up, where the debate ends up, is making a contribution less to an understanding of Chinese history 
or the history of China and Europe or the history of the globe, and much more a contribution to European history, a history of Europe, European domination, European expansion, and later European imperialism. And that is what the proponents of the Great Divergence disavowed from the beginning, and yet that is where they ended up. So that is one of the ironies of it. Well, to be fair, it wouldn't be much of a universalism if it, if it wasn't so all-pervasive. If what was not all-pervasive? These notions, these ideas that are so central to a European mode of thought, to, to, to an entire, like a Western understanding of the world, uh, it wouldn't be much of a universalist perspective if it didn't really find its way into every aspect of, uh, of Western thinking. And if it were so easy to cast off these models, then you know, perhaps we would have already done so. We'll take GDP as an example. It doesn't just have roots in a particularly European or European-American historical experience. It is also, when it comes to understanding the past of the 16th century, be it in Europe or be it in China, profoundly anachronistic. Hmm. And yet that has not stopped, it quite, the, quite the opposite. It has encouraged uh, a number of economic historians and economists to continue to attempt to construct GDP figures going back not just centuries, but millennia. But what does it mean to talk about a China in the year zero hmm. and it having a GDP? It, 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 is, it is so notionless to be fanciful as to be meaningless. And yet serious economists in economic history continue to undertake projects that seek to do precisely that. The Great Divergence debate ended up being mired in controversies over what are the appropriate metrics to use in comparing the history of China with the history of Europe. And it is in that exchange that it became apparent that to seek a viable answer to the Great Divergence question, why it was that the West rose and the East fell, one first needs to establish the right conceptual repertoire on the basis of which one then makes the comparisons. Concepts that are not anachronistic, concepts that are not ethnocentric, concepts that are not essentialized, concepts that are not path-dependent. So while these early global historians engaged in the Great Divergence debate failed in their own terms in answering the question of the rise of the West and the fall of the East, they did, however, open up fresh possibilities, which is what we are now reaping the benefits of today, which is where global history is and promises to go. You've reached the end of the first half of our conversation with Dr. Gagansud. Tune in next week on September 23rd as we tackle the future of global history. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com. And stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz Number no. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.